Welcome to episode 147 of the Cooch Sheet Podcast, a weekly informal discussion of matters of interest to readers of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and related fictions. This week, critic Gary K. Wolf and I are delighted to have author of Viriconium, Climbers, and the Kefahuchi Track Trilogy, amongst others, M. John Harrison, as a very special guest on the podcast. Good evening, Gary. Good morning, Jonathan. This is one of those odd uh, chronological things, because it's morning for me, it's afternoon for Mike, and it's late evening for you, I guess. It is indeed. It is indeed. But and in, in your honor, I'm, I'm, I've got red wine, so I'm ready to go. Excellent. So, <laughs> You're <not a> <laughs> well, that's my job. I mean, yeah. I'm drinking coffee. This is a complete reversal of what we usually do. It is indeed. Anyway, there thank is. you for taking the time, uh, Mike. I, I, I thought we were we wanted to get you on in time to celebrate the American publication of Empty Space, which is still only a couple of months ago. Um, and the new uh, we should mention also your new Kindle single, uh, Cave and Julia. And, and why did you decide to go with a Kindle single, which I think is wonderful because it meant that I could get it immediately? Um. Uh, partly because uh, Andrew Rosenheim, the guy who runs the UK operation, uh, uh-huh. got in touch with me and asked me if I'd like to do something. Um, and he had originally envisaged some nonfiction. Uh, but with a bottom limit of 5,000 words, uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was, that was too strong for my, <laughs> too strong for me. Uh, the best I can manage is, of nonfiction is, is 2,000 words. That's my limit. Um, so I suggested I do a story instead, and uh, he was interested. But my motive for doing it was to try and understand some of that side of the process, it being so new and all. How the have you? Fa- sorry, sorry, you go, go ahead, Gary. Jonathan. I was going to say, how have you found the process then, Gar- uh, Mike, uh, as opposed to having a story published somewhere uh, in print? Uh, it was. Um, it, it's an eye opener. Uh, I'm probably selling coals to Newcastle here, as far as certainly as far as other writers are concerned, uh, in, in as it were the, the modern world. But I found it a complete eye opener in terms of efficiency and uh, the incredibly short, uh, as it were, lead time. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, emotionally, uh, let's not not talk about it in any other way. To start with, for, for me, emotionally, to have to, by the time a story comes out in print, um, I've pretty well lost any kind of emotional contact with it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. This what was what was so surprising about this process, or one of the most surprising things, was that less than two weeks after I finished it, it was readable by readers, and I was already getting feedback uh, during the period where I was still emotionally attached to the story, where, where mm-hmm. I still felt it was you know. A great thing to have written. Normally, by the time a story comes out, it's dead to me. That must have been so a very was, must have been a very strange kind of a thing to have happen. Uh, well, it was a, it, it was like electricity or or crack cocaine. So, <laughs> you know, authors run authors run on feedback. 
that not just that they run on a sense that, that what they're doing at, at this very second that's the that's the important thing that's the that's the thing that's alive so does it seem you more dynamic hmm? does it seem more dynamic as a way of being part yeah, of I, would it, I, would, I would call it that the whole the whole if were i to do more of that were i to um were i to do that as constantly as i do print publishing then i feel that my entire relationship with with the whole concept of publishing would have changed completely. Um, and, and it seems to me so possibly addictive because <laughs> I'm a little bit chary about, about, <laughs> dipping, about dipping my toe any further into the water. Uh, this, the second thing that's interesting, of course, is that especially with a single, a Kindle single, mm. you start getting paid almost immediately as well. Mm. And you can see your pay being directly related to sales and at the same time if you're on twitter or any kind of social media you can talk to the readers who read the book the in this case the story 20 minutes before all of that is fascinating it's like watching your career in real time um, <laughs> yeah it's like well it's like having a career in real having time, a career in real time. <laughs> Does it give you a greater sense of how many people are actually reading a story? Because I, I imagine in most of the places where stories appear, it's a broader context than, than just your single story. So you're never quite sure who's actually reading it or how often or anything, I would think. No, exactly. Um, I think that um, it gives you a fantastic sense of uh, statistical connection, as it were, to your audience. Uh, it can be... I imagine it, it could be quite scary because it's very realistic. You know the truth immediately. You know how many people have bought that story in the first month. Um, you, you can see from the trend by that time um, how many more people are likely to buy it. Uh, so you have a very, it's a very realistic link to your own career, to your own uh, sense of contact with the audience but at the same time it, it I, I don't think it could ever fail to be exciting has it been heartening yeah totally oh good totally i feel um it's it's not just been heartening it's been um it's curiously enough and it's weird for a 68 year old to say this but it's had a huge effect on my confidence wonderful <laughs> and, <laughs> as a human I, not just as a writer but as a human being i mean <laughs> One of the problems that any writer has, especially a kind of old-fashioned writer, is that all they ever do is sit in a room all day sure. and write. Um, and, and I think that they eventually can sap your confidence, <laughs> <laughs> that lack of human contact. Um, this, is, this has done wonders for me and, and made me feel quite... Um, I just think there's something, as you put it, extremely heartening about that kind of direct contact with an audience. Obviously, this doing quite well as well. You yeah, know, I, oh, yeah I, I gather it is doing well. And I gather the, the, the feedback, I'm sure, has been positive. It's an excellent story. And I have to say, parenthetically, when you mentioned having a career in real time, the, the old R.A. Lafferty story, Slow Tuesday Night, flashed through my mind like you have an entire career and, and retire and, and start a second career within hours. Um, yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice, actually. <laughs> I, mean, I always thought I was too impatient to be a writer. It, it's a truism. I should have gone into rock and roll or something. We get instant feedback. Mm. 
would you be tempted to further investigate the form? I mean, not just simply write more short stories that may or may not come out that way, but uh, push it further and see if there are other things you can do to make it more of an ongoing dynamic interaction, or is it something you're happy to just put your toes in the water in occasionally? I think the latter, to start with, uh, what I want to avoid is to... I think Charlie Stross has stated this problem very neatly. Uh, If if you want to spend 80% of your time doing administration, publishing like that might be the way to do it. If you'd rather spend 80% of your time writing, then going with a print publisher or some kind of publisher is still is still probably the best option. Uh, I would I would hate to have to become a publisher as well as a writer. Mm. Uh, wouldn't suit me at all. But I don't see why there shouldn't be a middle way. Mm. And so I should probably dip my toe a few more times and then look for a project. Um, that can be uh, originated in in that way. Yeah. At the same time, again, I'm also deeply lazy. I'm not just impatient, I'm very <laughs> lazy. Uh, <laughs> I can respect uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, mo- it's modern, it's contemporary to be like that. Uh, I forgot, I've lost my thread now. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess remember, whether whether you whether you do that kind of thing again, whether there are projects that might fit, whether you know you feel this is a way forward, or it's just one of those things you would do. I guess is what we're talking at about. At, at the moment, it's just one thing, but I would like to find some kind of project that would that would suit that as well. Yeah. Some some kind of larger project that you could originate wholly on the web, um, and which would come out in electronic, probably solely in electronic form. Yeah. Um, is that something but, that, that uh, Autotelia Auto, Auto itself could could fit? Because, I mean, Cave and Julia is an Autotelia story that relates to the earlier piece that came out last year in Autotelia. So there's, like, obviously a, a sequence of these stories that you may be doing. Uh, yeah. Um, this is an, a very old idea. Indeed, this is an idea that I had just after I wrote Ignaro, the short story Ignaro. Mm-hmm. Uh and I was so Im- I was so impressed by the possibilities of that that whole idea of a this enigmatic place uh, which has somehow arrived on the planet or been not so much discovered as revealed you know a missing continent has suddenly appeared mm-hmm. um, that I I conceived of a novel which would be written uh, as a eight or ten apparent short stories, uh, each of which would reveal, not directly, but well in the corners, well in the corner of the reader's eye, that a whole new continent had appeared on Earth and and that there was traffic with it already, economic traffic and so on, political traffic. Um, At the time, I started it, but I realised that almost immediately that I was technically not up to doing it. Um, And much of the material has remained. Uh, Well, it's it's tempting. And part of what fascinated me about uh, what you were saying about instant uh, response to a story is that 
part of me, I, I really, really like the uh, the character relationship and the time span in Cave and Julia. But but the science fiction geek part of me was also thinking, okay, now Autotelli is a five hour flight from Heathrow, and it must be. <laughs> so so I'm doing all the sort of things that science fiction readers do of figuring out, okay, it has to be there, you know, and I, it's, 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 it's not just auto tell you. I, I, I tried to do that with, with, with China's the city in the city. And I remember way back when doing it with Le Guin's Orsinia. Do you get that dual response from, from people who read your books purely as science fiction and, or stories and people who read them, uh, as much more complex, multi-layered, you know, uh, you, you, if you get the distinction I'm talking about, the empty space, for example, has uh, an epigraph from Wheeler. I think you, I, I know one of your stories has an epigraph from Catherine Mansfield, but you also have an epigraph from A. E. Van Vogt. Uh, <laughs> do you and, still get A. E. Van Vogt readers? I uh, did that for a very specific reason. I mean, I think there are two questions there. I'd like yeah, to come back to. The- was based on Cave and Julia, but but quickly um, that the 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 Van Vogt quote is I use epigraphs to signal that the reader should look in a certain direction while reading quite mm-hmm. often um, that they should keep certain things in mind perhaps while reading and the idea there was a kind of amused. Uh, indicator if you like or flag or pointing device which said you know uh, while you read this story keep in mind the plots of Eve and Ver- <laughs> <laughs> which as we all know might, might either have been massively complex too complex to follow or totally chaotic <laughs> uh, and thus impossible to follow um, and I, I felt that that went well with the uh, with the Marco Pleiser quote, uh, mm-hmm. which was, which is to do with the unknowability of the universe, as it were, because of the limitation of one's perceptual devices. Um, so, in fact, th- those three quotes, those three ep- ep- epigraphs, they stack, and they kind of give you a, a rough direction to look in when you're reading. It won't help you, of course. <laughs> well, uh, well, actually, the, t- the, the Wheeler quotation. Uh, uses the phrase empty space in a quantum physical term. Uh, yeah. so, so that probably is very useful. Uh, the Van Vogt yes. quote, for people who have not read empty space, which everybody should, in a certain sense, everything is everywhere at all times, um, which is just wonderful because in one sense it explains all of Van Vogt's fiction, and you're right, it provides a direction for the reader. Um, yes. But you mentioned that there were two questions, and you're right. My first question had to do with, I guess, what was it again? <laughs> Cave and Julia. Well, it was to do with the interpretation of the text by ah, uh, SF, yeah. SF readers who would who would demand, um, as it were, a solvable problem, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 for instance, say more mainstream readers who might regard the the thing more metaphorically or might be more used to handling a uh, a uh, uh, a lack of um, a lack of a deliberate lack of solubility, as it were, at, at the level of, as you say, where is the imaginary country located? If, mm. if, it, if it takes me, uh, uh, one of the things I have done with 
autotelier as I conceive it now is that every story will there will be a different method of getting there and the uh, time will always be for instance in in autotelier, in autotelier it's located in the North Sea and you go there by train mm. and there is some kind of weird topological intersection that the train must cross mm. whereas in Cave and Julia you just get on a thing called the Dreamliner and fly yeah. there and it's uh, I think in the uh, I think the text, the Kindle text, it's described as being in the Mediterranean. Um, Actually, so the idea, the idea of that was to forbid the reader from making the kind of speculation that you've made. Uh, the idea is to make absolutely certain that the reader cannot locate it in a, Actually, in a position. Actually, uh, I think I, I think you described it as being located in or near what we used to call the Mediterranean. Yes, yes. Which well, if you think about, it may well be to my mind, that, that, that if there's a continent for the moment of that story, that missing content, continent is where the um, Mediterranean used to be. Uh, however, why it would take five hours to fly there on a, on a Boeing <laughs> I, uh, from Great Britain. That most of my idea with most of these stories is to make that kind of speculation impossible, uh, to throw the reader onto the metaphorical uh, mm meaning of the story. To, to me, for Cave and Julia is successful, and, and, and for me massively successful, more, more successful in fact than in Autotelia, uh, is, is its extraordinary emotional range. Mm. And the emotional mystery is what's keyed by the, the, the rest of the mystery, the apparent mystery, the, um, the existence of a mysterious continent the existence of a place on that continent where should you try to cross a courtyard, something equally and extra, extra strange may happen to you. All of that is, for me, a way of keying the deep mystery, which is why on earth are those two people attracted to one another? And what on earth sustains that attraction over 20 or 30 years? Which for me was the real... Yeah. That's the real mystery there. Do you I think, agree. Do, go ahead, John. I was say, do, you think, do you think science fiction and fantasy readers miss something when they insist on trying to literalize these kind of things when they read? Yes. Uh, I, I think equally that mainstream readers may well miss something if, when they, if they fail to literalize when they're reading science fiction. <laughs> I think it works, <laughs> both, it works in both directions. And I think the ideal text tries to do both. Uh, for me, the ambition from, I, I think the ambition that I shared with, with Chris Priest and a couple of other guys from way back when, is we thought, we felt that eventually somebody would be able to write in such a way that both kinds of reader could do both kinds of things. Do you feel like the Autotelia stories are getting closer to that kind of space for you? Uh, it's hard to say. I don't. I don't think so. As I say, the the concept of an imaginary country there is poetic. Mm. It's 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 not meant to be. You're not meant to be able to arrive at it as a as a kind of science fictional concept. Sure. So I would mm. guess I was in that sense. Although it's overtly fantastic, uh, it's overtly science fictional. It's actually less science fictional than, than some of my earlier work. 
and certainly, obviously, a lot less, mm. a lot less than empty but, space. Although, although again, Cave and Julia has a lot of linkage to empty space in emotional terms, in in yeah. the way, in terms of the way the characters are handled, even in terms of some of the landscapes and the the general tenor of the thing. Yeah. Well, it's hard to. I was, I was speaking of, of how readers can approach the work. It's for me. It's. I, mean, I would think that science fiction, uh, hard, hardcore science fiction readers, would find a difficult time rationalizing the whole idea of the Kefahuchi tract, uh, which works beautifully as a metaphor. But it's uh, from a quantum physics point of view, I don't know what you can do with it, really. Except it's a wonderful image-generating machine. I didn't quite catch uh, the middle of that statement. There's a bit of oh, I, 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 yeah. The point I was making was that the it, it, seem, it would seem to me to be difficult to read the Kefahuchi tract in much other than a metaphorical way. Uh, I don't know. I think if you if you're sufficiently inter interested in quantum mechanics, I think there. Are, there are there are three or four possible ways to read the the first novel and the third and and the and the entirety of all three. Um, I'm not going to say what they are because I think that would spoil people's fun. Oh yeah, <laughs> but you can you can connect the bits if you do some quantum mechanics. I'm not saying that 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 you could connect the bits. In the way you could, if it was a Greg Egan novel mm. or an right. Alistair Reynolds novel, because I'm frankly not that interested in quantum mechanics or indeed science, but it's there. There are there are pos there are science fictional possibilities of interpretation in in all three books, and especially mm -hmm. in the entirety, if you consider all three uh, as one thing, which which it is, it was in, it was designed to be one thing. Then they can be read as science fiction, uh, but uh, but I think that that would be a limiting reading. Mm -hmm. uh, me, it would be it would be much nicer if people read it as a science fictional metaphor for for lots of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and there again, you can attack you can attack all three of those books now by eight or nine different possible you can attack them at, at, at eight or nine possible levels to extract meaning from them um, I'll give you one for free which because it's so obvious uh, it, it seems to me quite likely that by the time you finish the third book it is very easily possible to understand the whole thing as uh, a neurosis of, of Anna's mm -hmm. that uh, that we are seeing the whole of this universe as a kind of neurological failure of uh, banners, uh, who are, who is perhaps in what should we say Alzheimer's? Mm, uh, something is happening. Say that again. Well, she's 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 one of your more irresistible characters, I think, and. I, I have the sense that I've met Anna before, not or, or met other versions of Anna before. Does that sound reasonable? Oh, very reasonable. Uh, Anna is uh, 
even if you trace her only as far back as the beginning of light, uh, she's uh, she's very clearly a kind of. I find this hard to explain, but I, I, I don't want to give too much sure. away, and no, I also no. don't I also don't want to imply that there's any kind of autobiographical uh, way to decode the book. But uh, Anna's based on a real person. Um, at the same time, she's based on a very generalized sense of myself. And if, uh-huh. if, if, if you'd like, if they, I'll give you another one more free way of, of accessing <laughs> that text. And that's it. The shot closes after that. Uh, and that's that. That it, it could, if you if you keep in mind that 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 Anna might be the the as it were the author of the of of the three pieces of the three novels, that might be an interesting way to look at the book. Anna is very very me. Uh, she's not a side of me that that, that people see often, um, but she's. She suits the way I see the world. Um, and uh, she goes, as you say, she goes way back. She goes back to the, 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 the central female character in The Course of the Heart, for instance. Yes, exactly. That's uh, what I was thinking of. And she goes back further than that to Audsley King in, in the Viriconium stories. Um, I think there's a line of continuity. She's shifted and changed over the years. But... As I say, here's a clue. Wherever you find her, you'll find me. <laughs> Fair enough. <clears throat> All right. So you mentioned The Course of the Hard Night, uh, which also was reissued a few years ago in the United States by the late lamented Nightshade books. Um, and uh, as m- that, that's probably my favorite novel of yours, as much as I like the trilogy. Um, and I think I'm not exactly sure why, but um, it's, well, maybe I do. Maybe I'm a sucker for what I think of now as great God Pan stories. Um, (laughs) Obviously, there's your story, the great God Pan. Uh, This idea of people vaguely remembering something in the past, during which they may or may not have sort of broken through the glass uh, and... How much did Arthur Mackin have to do with your version of that story? Well, I think in a, I think if you were to talk about, uh, I've forgotten what Ruskin, what Ruskin called it, a person's early and most major influences, the ones that, the ones that were internalized and went deep. Praetor sources, mm. he called them. Yeah. Um, if you were to talk Praetor sources, for me, Arthur Macon would be one of them, I think. There's no doubt about it. Uh-huh. Um, he, I read him, I was going to say religiously. But <laughs> I read him, in fact, I think I will. I read him religiously from, from being about 13. And, and first I was simply very, very scared. Uh, and then I began yeah. to recognize the kind of platonic stuff and a lot of the, the metaphysics. Um, I always felt from being a tiny boy that there was a way of there was made there was a way of, of making 
the huge mistake about the world that it was a kind of transparency overlaid on something else mm-hmm. that that it was that somewhere underneath it as it were somewhere just beyond it or and and probably very close and yet and yet not achievable was was as it were a real world the real world um or some meaning that the world had world had uh which which it could only express by being the world as we know it uh which has become modified over the years into this again this kind of almost marco pleister idea that, that we we simply don't have the either the perceptual mechanisms that the sensory mechanisms or or the the scientific mechanisms to see the world as it actually is so if you like that was that was what attracted me to make but it had also attracted me to many other writers of that type at mm-hmm. the same time so that for me you can't read Macon without reading Yeats it it makes no sense to read Macon without knowing Yeats and it actually doesn't make much sense to to read Yeats without knowing Macon as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. uh, and there were many other writers of that type including Charles Williams uh, all really? three were members yeah yeah all three were members of the golden dawn i think at one point or another um and all of them, all three of them either got scared or, or all three of them rejected it quite quickly in the, you know yeah. the timeline of their li- lives they were very involved and then suddenly one minute and then the next minute they weren't involved and williams i think was very frightened i think williams abandoned it because it frightened him uh, what am i trying to say well, basically wait. Go ahead. Uh, basically, that that story is has a makes tongue-in-cheek reference to Arthur Macon, W. B. Yeats, Charles Williams, <laughs> mm-hmm. practically every other English uh, charismatic. No, that would be the wrong word. Every every English ecstatic writer of the twenties and thirties. T.F. Powers, as well as the other Powers, as well as the well-known Powers, for instance. Oh yeah, Jim. Uh, it, it makes reference to Stanley Spencer, you know, who wasn't a writer, obviously, but who, as far as I'm concerned, was playing in the same yard. Uh, and would you, and all would you, of. Them. Go ahead. Oh, would you would you include writers like David what? Lindsay and E.H. Viziak in that group? No, I'm looking for okay. something. I would be. I would be talking very specifically about um, a kind of English ecstatic religious experience at the time. The last of them, probably, you know, that vanished within 20 years that had gone by the time C.S. Lewis wrote The Idiot's Strength. What he was complaining about the loss of was already so lost that he looked like a dinosaur. Um, Mm. The... The 20s and the 30s was the last time for ecstatic religion in Great Britain. Uh, and by by that, I mean a, a, a religion which was essentially Wordsworthian, which mm-hmm. looked looked through the world to whatever was there. Neoplatonism, obviously. Um, yes. For me, they were all writers on the, 
in caught in the paradox of, of, of transcendence and imminence. Is the world transcendent or is it imminent? Is the truth about it transcendent or is it imminent? Mm. Um, for me, that's what that story was about. Uh, and when I say the story, I mean the course of the heart. Yes. Because the course of the heart is not based on the short story version. The short story version was an outtake from an earlier version of the novel. Uh-huh. Um, the, comp- the, 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 the composition of that novel was extremely complex. It originally had another layer of characters and a, 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 a wholly different layer of history, as it were, novelistic history in it, uh, which I found impossible to handle. And which would certainly have brought it out around five, six hundred pages, which I, you know, I simply didn't have the stamina to do. Um, so various convulsions during the writing led to what became the Great God Pan uh, as a short story being subtracted from the text and then put back in in a different, completely different way several years later. Ah, that. So it's, you know, the, these things are more complex than people think. When you, when you say, I use a short story to test that novel, mm. that's one thing. But I also suddenly see that part of a novel can be outtaken uh, and, and made into a short story. So that for me, what am I trying to say? That I don't see much difference between a fiction compounded of other fictions which used to be separate and a lot of fictions which used to be part of one thing that have been separated and decompounded into single fictions. Uh, For me, the the whole process is to do with flow between those two concepts uh, with the result that a short story like The Quarry can become briefly a chapter in the course of the heart. could as easily have become a chapter in something else. There is no inherent rightness for any of the things in a novel or a story to be together. They're mm. only together because I write the connective material that, that makes it seem as if they're together. That makes sense. I guess. I so. um, pardon? I hope so. I mean, people don't often, people tend to see writers as people who write a single story and they sit down and they start at point A and they end at point B. That's, that's a very readerly way of looking at things. <laughs> yes. Well, the re- <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, the, the, wasn't the great God Pan, the story, published in a horror anthology originally? That's right. It was published in um, a very successful Douglas Winter collection in about 1987 i think oh that sounds about it had been been ripped out of the of the original version of the course of the heart about two years earlier um and was lying around in in a folder on its own uh in in again in a slightly different form it was not the when it was ripped out of the original it was not it was not in the form it, it 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 is now um, mm-hmm. Somebody asked me for a story, uh, not Douglas Winter, in fact, 
And so I spent some time thinking, oh, I'll knock that into a story and see what happens. Uh, and the original market turned it down. But then Douglas was looking for a story and he loved it. So he published it. And and, and, and Douglas Winter is, is certainly an editor who would be aware of the uh, relationships to Mackin. Um, I guess the, the, I guess my question is, when you have a story like that appear in an anthology like that in the context of other horror stories, that invites the reader to regard this as a horror story, which oh, yes. in a way it is, but that's only one way of reading it. Oh, absolutely. And I think the, <laughs> I think the writer I think the writer manipulates that. I mean, I think if you're wise, you manipulate everything, the relationship of the story to the title the relationship of the story to the, or the context of the story's publication, as you've said. Mm. If you can get it, you try to get control over the cover because all of these are con contexting factors that will cause this, the story to be read in, in the way you want it to be read. Mm -hmm. uh, what's fascinating is to be published, as you say, in an anthology where you can't control any of the, the context. Uh, it's interesting to see how the story reads then, what sort of story it turns out to be in that context. This is something I'm very interested in, in, in storytelling itself, in plotting, and in the development of character to people are their context. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, most of Empty Space is, is, is a set of riffs on contexts that don't quite work for the people that are in them. <laughs> <clears throat> One of the things that I noticed in some of the reviews of Empty Space, and it's certainly gotten uh, serious attention from serious reviewers, but there's a lot of very funny stuff in the book that seems to get overlooked. I mean, there are parts of that novel I thought were absolutely hilarious, and um, I don't see a lot of discussion about that. No, uh, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed, actually, because the whole, <laughs> the, whole, uh, uh, the whole trilogy, or whatever you'd like to call it, uh, was... At one level, supposed to be processable as as black comedy, mm -hmm. um, the political edge, and a lot of that's been missed. A lot of the human comedy is missed. I think that the assistant in her second incarnation <clears throat> in Empty Space is the funniest thing I've ever written. I find her extremely funny. Her relationship with this tragic guy. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and she keeps coming up with these wonderful names for herself. At one point, she decides she's Lauren Bacall. Uh, yes. Which just, yeah, that's just wonderful. She's a, she's a wonderful character. I, I adored writing her. I must say, she's, of course, designed to be a, a, a kind of opposite to Anna. Uh, yes. Which is, why, which is why the novel ends up the way it ends up. Stop me if I'm producing spoilers here. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've, you've touched upon a sensitive topic that we've come about before, the idea of spoilers. Um, and um, I, I, well, I don't want to get on a hobby horse about that. Clute and I have both had this discussion about whether you can really spoil a novel that is so richly complex that no two people will read it exactly the same way. Uh, obviously, it would be my belief that you can't. Uh, mm. that, that, that even, a, even a very plain apparently plain and simple novel if it has 12,000 readers will there will be 12,000 different novels 
I believe that so firmly that it, it's mm. not up for discussion with me. Uh, oh. As far as I'm concerned, I spend a year, two years, ten years, whatever, writing the book into existence. Thereafter, it gets read into existence by each separate reader. Sure. Uh, this doesn't mean that I can. This this doesn't mean that I don't quarrel with certain readerly readings, uh, <laughs> but it does mean that, that every time it's a different book. It's different when I read it. If you, if you, even if you write a book, even if you've written a book yourself, and you go to it four years later, you think, "My God, what a, why on earth did I write this?" <laughs> <laughs> because it's become by then, at, at, at the point you read it, you've changed. Mm. You've become a reader. Yeah. Yeah, and you've become a reader. You've forgotten why you did certain things, obviously. Um, however intense your relationship with the scene was four years before. Uh, actually, all you can remember when you read it is the intensity you felt when you wrote it, not why it seemed so intense. Um, but uh, I think they shift all the time. I think books shift all the time. And I think the whole idea that it's possible to spoil a book, I, it, it requires a, a very simplistic definition of what a book is. I think, to you to even use the term, but right. It, it, it occurs to me though, if is there a risk that when the author talks about a book though, that you collapse possibilities for a reader because it's seen as being a definitive statement or re, or reading of the book? Yeah, I think that's why I would always either not talk too much in in, in an interpretive way. Mm. Or remind the reader that, that an author is an essentially a trickster and that what I say now is not necessarily any more than what I want you to hear. <laughs> I, I guess because I've always been talking about the fact that, you know, through all, you know, sort of, well, 56 years of his professional life, Jack Vance refused to talk meaningfully about his work, though I doubt he was incapable at any point of doing so. Uh, and hearing you talk about how you want possibility to be to be you know uh, different readings different possibilities to be brought to reading the autotelia work for example it seems like that's the last thing you would want to do i don't mind i mean i really like to talk about what i do because and and write about what i do which i do a lot on the blog because to me it's so important it's writing is a very important thing and uh, a given piece of work is a lot has gone into it uh, and you would obviously hope that there will be readers or even a reader somewhere out there who will be able to fish 80 percent of that back out um, and therefore the temptation is yes to try and explain yourself or to try and give people clues as to how to interpret the text, especially if it's a text, anything like one of my texts, yeah. which are designed to be, you know, difficult of access. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Not so much access. They're not designed to be difficult of access. In fact, they're designed not necessarily to give you what you thought you were going to get. Um, anyway, the point is, if you do that, attempt to temptation to kind of second guess yourself and explain away the very trap that you wanted to lay. <laughs> that's quite high you know and, and it's something i try to avoid 
do you find you have train spotter readers who try and pin you down? I caught the second part of that, but not the first. Do you find you have train spotter readers who try and pin you down? Yes. <laughs> I only ask uh, because I've seen interviews with people like Jack Vance and others where they're asked, and Gene Wolfe, Gene Wolfe is particularly true for this, 20-minute uh, long questions designed to get to a, please tell me now that I'm correct. Yes. I think that's... I do think that's to do with the basic anxiety of reading in a way that, that essentially reading doesn't work unless there's a on page one a, a vast anxiety opens up. That's what drives you through a narrative. The, the, this idea of, of wanting to know what happened is an anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's a, and, and the author exploits that. And I think that, that some readers and I know this because I felt like that myself when I was young. Uh, that anxiety is very high indeed. To, to achieve a, a, a dependable conclusion and a solution is, is really a very... It, it, it hurts if, it, if, if, if there appears to be a failure of that process. Mm. Uh, and I think that's what... That's what can drive that type of question and, mm. and, and that type of fascination with the text. But I go with eco and sort of say, basically, if that's what drives the reader through a text, if that anxiety is what drives the reader th- through a text, the way to make the text live on forever is to leave at least one part of it totally insoluble. I think echo, uh, I think if you find a novel as a, text for gen- as a machine for generating interpretations yeah. I think that was his phrase um, and that is, is a fun way to read I, I, I think the kind of reductive questioning that, uh, that Jonathan was talking about that I think every writer gets uh, may be a, an, a holdover an archaism of, uh, an artifact of the science fictional way of reading uh, the science fictional way of reading in which not only would the plot resolve itself, but every concept within the story would have to resolve itself in some mechanical way that John W. Campbell would approve of. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I I've, I think I've always thought that that kind of missed the point of fiction. Uh, indeed, it kind of misses the point of life, which <laughs> is that basically most questions never get answered, not to anybody's satisfaction. And that's all there is to it. Life is not a contraption. It's not um, a structure. It doesn't have a structure. Uh, your life is not soluble. Possibly that's why people prefer fiction that is soluble. Um, but for me, the fascinating thing is to try and write something that that, re- <laughs> that either resembles reality or gives you the same feeling that reality <laughs> gives. <laughs> In fact, the latter really now, I've I've kind of, aged out of the idea that you could possibly ever write anything realistic. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think you, you can give the, the reader very similar feelings <laughs> to the ones that they experience every day in the office. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> the, arg- the arg- I, I, read the, I read an argument once by, a, by, by an art critic that the only really uh, 20th century, the, the most realistic 20th century artist was Jackson Pollock. Um, and the argument was, 
Well, his, the, his argument was very simple. Jackson Pollock, when you're looking at Jackson Pollock painting, you know you're looking at paint. And all representational painting tries to convince you you're looking at something else, but you're really just looking at paint. Yeah, that's very true. That's a very good point. <laughs> well, you mentioned the blog, and there's, I have a question about the blog. Tell us about the theory cadre and the uh. Ambiente Hotel. Well, I'm not sure I can say anything much more than, than, than what's there. Um, I, I wrote a deliberately surrealistic post one day because I was bored and because I couldn't think of anything else to write. And within days, I realized that, that the theory cadre would never die. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that they had become part of me or that they were always part of me. Um, I... The idea of having a shadowy body of, of oh, I don't know, there's so much in that. It's a parody of theory. It's a Let's lot of it. fun. It's, it's, it, yeah, you it know, really is. It's, it's a, a parody of theory. Oh. It's, a, it's a kind of artistic creation in the form of a blog. And um, that's odd. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of blogs, obviously. But this seems to be a thing. It seems to have a... Um, an identity of its own now, a life of its own. And well, well, yeah, I saw the possibility of that and, and suddenly thought, well, I'm sure people, I'm sure somebody must have done this before with a blog, but I'd like to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea of, of developing a kind of part of the gift was of the Donnay was, was the very fact that I called the blog, the Ambiente Hotel. That mm. gave it a kind of location, mm. and suddenly, if you can people a location like that, then it's fun. If you can then develop that into parody, pastiche, uh, and so on, then you're using the blog to not necessarily on a daily basis, because I think that would be too tiring, and it would also burn you out very quickly. But certainly on a sort of irregular basis, you're building something in, in front of the people who come to the blog, uh, which which to me is a, as good a definition as any for, for the idea of in, interactive uh, fiction. People yes, can be there every you know people can be there every day, watch this thing develop, make comments of their own. It's it's a fun process altogether. It was linked to the development of the imaginary re reviews, um, uh -huh. which also take place on the blog. And I think both both of them have slowed down now. And I think both of them will be in my new collection of short stories as finished items. Uh, and I will look for something else to develop on the blog, but you can't predict what it will be. Um, both of those ideas came out of nowhere. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that imaginary reviews are anything original. Uh, we all know that they've been done by a million people. Mm -hmm. It's so almost an art form. Oh, John, Jonathan. No, no, you, no I was just going to say, so does, does this mean there's a new collection of stories in train? Uh, yeah, I've got enough fiction now to do it. Um, it's a matter of deciding uh, all those irritating little things that, that mean more to an author than anybody else, such as what order will I put them in? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and 
if I put this story first, will people get the wrong idea of what kind of writer I am? <laughs> and and nerve-wracking questions of that sort. Um, also, I've discovered that I've got an equal number of long stories and short stories. And so another question is, will I organise them one long, one short, or one short, one long? <laughs> Um, and so on. In short, I'm faffing about. I have about. It won't be a long collection, but it's it'll it'll just about fill a, a volume, um, and it, I'm sure it'll be out in the next year, next couple of years, yeah. in some form or other. Obviously, for me, for instance, with the success of Cave and Julia uh, online, there is a certain temptation to make that the online project. Yeah, you know, and think, well, what if I, what if I just went straight online with this? You know, uh, I would really what? urge you not to. Can I tell you why? Because having, I've edited forty something anthologies, and the very act of assemblage that you talk about is a fascinating thing to encounter as a reader, and you won't get that online, will you? Um. Well, you, I don't see that. I mean, you'll get the result of it. I don't see that that would be any different to getting mm. the result in a in a print yeah. uh, edition, um, unless I wrote a forward about the difficulties I'd had <laughs> in, in organising these stories <laughs> and how I was committing suicide if anybody said it was the wrong order. Um, but um, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I haven't the experience that you have, obviously. Um, and but for me, there's this new, there's this possible new toy out there mm. you know and i keep looking at it and thinking wow what if you did that <laughs> um but i'm also trying to decide whether to uh there are some guys in argentina at the moment who are working on a kind of uh selection of uh, m john harrison stories for publication you know in that language mm -hmm. um who had the brilliant idea of uh, interleaving bits of the blog uh, mm. and bits of bits of non-fiction uh, into into a collection of short stories, uh, and even perhaps using some of the photographs from the blog, which I thought was a, an absolutely splendid idea. Um, now I don't know how they're getting on with that, mm. uh, and I don't know what their funding is like, but I'm certainly. Another thing I'm thinking about and I'm tempted to do is to see if I can find an English publisher who would who would take what for them would be an astonishing that would be an astonishingly revolutionary step. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, to good God, you know, to produce a book that was kind of a mixed bag of stuff, very carefully structured uh, and interleaved with those wonderful black and white photographs mm. printed straight onto the page rather than, you know, uh, those kinds of things where you can't actually see what's in the photograph. <laughs> Grainy, grey, blurred, could be anything. Could certainly be a subject of, of, of an episode of, of the theory cage. Um, yes. But um, so I'm thinking in those directions as well. But there's, for me, there's no rush. And so I have a collection of short stories, yes, yeah. And uh, soon it will be out. Excellent. And I assume you're writing more? Uh, yeah, I've, 
I'm doing one for ARC at the moment, or at least I hope it will be in ARC um, later on in the year. Uh, I've suddenly, you know, you need a laboratory. And, and for me, in a way, short stories are one at the same time, I think, my most successful form, but also they're the most experimental. They're, they they are my laboratory. And uh, I also believe that you have to change from novel to novel. It's not so much you have to change, but if you don't, then you stop changing as a person. Uh, any novel, any short story, any piece of fiction should be a response in some sense to your own ongoing set of responses to the to the universe as it were um and over the last since since i finished the uh, since i finished empty space i felt that i need whatever is trying to be said needs a slightly different me to say it and that that, that me will only be found that writer will only be discovered by writing short stories and messing around and going, wait a minute, I really like that. And and what has happened actually is that um, bits of empty space, particularly the sections to do with um, Gaines and his daughter, their relationship I found fascinating. Um, yeah. And it led me to write in a way that I've not written before, but which you can now see in Cave and Julia. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, um, a more, as it were, Harrisonian, Harrisonianly traditional uh, way of writing, which which you would, I suppose, you would link back to a degree to Macon uh, or to Robert Aitman, um, and also to to the art of the, as it were, mainstream short story. That's been changing and shifting as well. Once I find a short story that will plug those two new directions into one another. I think I'll be able to write the next novel. I mean, I'm writing the next novel, but it doesn't seem to have exploded for me yet. It doesn't seem to have said, ah, this is what, this is what we want you to do. <laughs> you know, this is, this is the thing. And I believe these short stories will, will, will sort that out for me, um, I think. This might be an odd question, but does science fiction and fantasy remain a useful tool for you? I think it, it remains the most... It remains the most pleasant and intriguing sandbox to play in. Uh, for me... The trilogy, which I actually call the Empty Space Trilogy now. Okay. Um, I decided I would, I, I would I would like to think of it because it was originally Light was originally entitled Empty Space, um, mm. and the whole concept of whether space is empty or not is obviously crucial to the entire three books. So it seems to me that keeping that Wheeler quote in mind. That, that empty space would be a better title for all three, which I hope to see in one volume. I would hope, you know, I would hope that would happen pretty soon. Um, mm -hmm. 
I realized while I was working on, on that, that, that it's a sandbox. I wouldn't give up for the, for the world, you know, it's, Do you think Ian, Bank, Ian Banks reminded me that I didn't have enough fun and getting back, <laughs> to that, getting back into that sandbox and throwing the sand about, you know, and making pies and generally acting like a juvenile. Uh, Do you find that mainstream, oh, go ahead. It's a, for me, it was an invitation, and it is an invitation. Even Cave and Julia, although a much more controlled process, was an invitation to play. You know, and play is so valuable. I wonder if you find that mainstream or literary culture, uh, magazines, I don't know, you, you, you've had stories in Conjunctions and McSweeney's, and those seem to be what we used to think of as highbrow literary magazines that seem much more willing to look at material from the sandbox of science fiction and fantasy. Um, I mean, I think Brad Morrow, is, uh, the, the editor of Conjunctions, is, has really had his eyes opened uh, by yep. you and Jonathan Carroll and a number of other uh, writers who are now contributors to Conjunctions. Yeah, I think um, that... That's spreading everywhere now, and that that's simply as that's a, as a result of there being so many talented writers who cite themselves in the area that that that, that Chris Priest still calls slipstream. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want the implication of a of a boundary that, that yeah. is crossed in either direction. For me, liminal liminal states are always fuddled, odd, and and, uh, and not definable, and, and that's the way you want them to be. I think, and in that in that space, we now have writers who don't really consider themselves to be one thing or the other, or indeed anything. I think, for me, what would link Karen Russell to Kelly Link, for instance, is that they don't—they obviously don't see themselves as writers of any particular thing. They are just writers. They write what they want to write, and it's uh, less of an effort to to them than it was for me, say, in 1965, to think of things that way. I, I agree. That's a generational thing. Last uh, last week's podcast, we were talking to. E. Lily Yu, who's all of, what, 25 or something. Uh, and it's clear that people of, of that generation are not growing up with these divisions. Um, they're not yeah. growing up with the idea that you have to be in, in the New Yorker or in Asimov's. Um, I'm insanely jealous, I have to say. I feel, uh, I feel that, well... It was of use that there be this massive struggle in the 60s, that it be that it be a, a thing in itself. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you've got a kind of energy from that. You've got a kind of energy from from inf inflicting trauma on the boundaries. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, the moment you consider it in that light, you're admitting that there are boundaries. And you have limited yourself, I think. And I, I, I believe myself to be most of the time, even now, limited by that concept. 
and I feel terrible jealousy of these younger people who, <laughs> who, 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 who don't have that as a problem and who do what I would dearly love to do 100% of the time but can only manage to do 10% of the time, which is simply right, you know? Mm-hmm. Simply mm-hmm. right what's necessary to get the, get the point over to the reader. Um, that's, that's, all it, that's all it should ever be about. Really, and I think that you know we are seeing a recognition on both sides of the game. Again, to come back to this, I I hate this geographical metaphor of you know sides and and boundaries. Yeah. Uh, but it'll have to do as a shorthand. Uh, both sides of that. I was but recently. People... I've been corresponding for for a, a little while with. Um, the guy who's the chair of the, the Booker Prize in, in Britain at the moment, a guy called Robert McFarlane. Um, Give you a wonderful review of uh, climbers. Yeah, yeah, he's... The, the brilliant thing about that review was not so much for me that it was a wonderful review, but it was a review which, which very clearly said, very clearly made the statement that... Uh, that the author of Climbers also wrote empty space but that doesn't make any difference mm. that, that the concept of genre is meaningless in the concept in the context of our book uh, rob mcfarlane in short has he's made the jump um quite fascinated that that, that 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 you should be able to produce an example like that after for me 50 years of, of hard work <laughs> Um, day after day saying but there shouldn't be a difference there shouldn't be a difference you know uh, we have so much to offer one another although that sounds deeply liberal so I take it back <laughs> well, you- it, it is tragic in a sense that uh, it's tragic because of Ian Banks obviously but you know, from from this side from this perspective in, in, in the US the, the only two names I guess associated with our genre who People think are, and you know, are, are certainly on the Booker shortlist or ought to be, or, or were you and Banks, um, and it's difficult for us to see. Uh, we, we can't be exactly too um, smug about it because uh, America's own National Book Awards and Pulitzer Prizes are sometimes massively embarrassing. But nevertheless, there is that sense that uh, that, that you've made it that far. That that to some extent. Fewer and fewer readers, I think, from my perspective anyway, are, are reading you in category or reading you. I, I, I don't find younger readers especially saying, oh, empty space is science fiction and the course of the heart is mainstream or fantasy. I, I, I see fewer and fewer readers making that distinction. I would hope you do, too. Uh, certainly, certainly I have now begun, I, I have to admit now that I have gathered or begun to gather a very, a very, a readership which is extremely flexible in that sense and who don't regard me as, who, who read, who read empty space because they expect to get from it what they would get from, from an M. John Harrison novel rather Mm -hmm. than from a science fiction novel or who would read climbers in the expectation of, of getting from it what they would get 
from an M. John Harrison novel, not 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 a mainstream novel. Um, I I agree with you. Yes, <laughs> um, I do think that you know things have changed a bit. But I, I I think there's somebody missing from that list. I mean, there are many people missing from the from this two-person list <laughs> of English SF writers who ought to who ought to have had a, a bit at least a, a nomination for the Booker. And I think that's Chris Priest. I think yeah. Chris. I think Chris Priest as well. Um, yeah, should Chris. <sighs> I do not see how it is possible, given what Chris is writing in the last three or four years uh, and what I know he's going to be writing in the future. I cannot, I cannot believe that he will not at least get, get a, a major nomination, uh, a shortlist nomination. Uh, I believe him to be at the absolute peak of his powers. Uh, he's writing astonishing stuff. Mm. And it is neither SF nor mainstream it's chris priest mm -hmm. you know if you it, and it's juicy <laughs> <laughs> i think one of the things that people people do like categories though people do like to find pigeonholes when i, I was i was uh, very impressed by the islanders which is the last thing i read we don't i don't have the the, the new one uh but i remember reviewers of the islanders saying well this is this is this is like Calvino, or this, it, which it isn't. Um, no, but, it isn't. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it, actually, uh, we should parenthetically at least mention that uh, uh, people invent categories when they're not comfortable with the old ones, and you're partly responsible for this. I mean, you throw out a phrase like the new weird <coughs> blog years ago, and, and suddenly everybody is flocking to it and saying, oh, it's a genre. It is problematic. People people like categories. Um, I presume you to be talking about the new weird here. <laughs> uh, new weird. The first post. The first post mentioning the new weird claimed itself to be parodical and a joke. Yes, I know. It was, it was a post rich with self sarcasm, <laughs> and I, nobody seemed to get that. Uh, like <laughs> announcing you're all individuals, yes. <laughs> I admit. Yeah, I, the, the funniest thing I've ever seen like that was um, at, at a conference, I forget where, when somebody asked Chris Priest uh, what, what, what he thought about science fiction. And Chris left a very, very long pause. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What science fiction? And there was a, a couple of mentions of books. And he left another very long pause. And then he said, did I write those? <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, then I'm not responsible, am I? I don't have any thoughts about this. <laughs> I want to ask. Do you think people get too hung up on whether something is science fiction or fantasy, or science fiction or fantasy enough? I don't. I don't make a dis. I have to say, don't tell anybody this, but I don't make a distinction. Mm. Uh, the whole point of the weird for me, and the new weird, and every other kind of weird, is that for me, the phrase is shorthand for a time when maybe you could say in the nineteen twenties. 
that it was very, very difficult to make a distinction in any given work where no popular writer thought for a second of, of, of not putting together religious fantasy, so-called science fiction, horror and ghosts all in the same work. There was no, there, there was, everything seemed to be a lot more fluid to me as a young boy reading that kind of thing. Um, I'm trying to think of an example now. Mm. I can only come up with Lovecraft, of course, because that's the one you always think of. Mm. But, but, or really crap writers like Dennis Wheatley um, or John Creasy, uh, who allowed the genres to infect one another uh, at the drop of a hat because yeah. everything was that much more fluid back then. You know, you could, as long as you could chill the blood and, and have a bit of suspense, it didn't really matter whether, didn't matter. I remember reading a description of, of, of X-rays in a 1920s science fiction story, which, which very clearly indicated that the author thought they were a kind of poison gas. Oh, wow. And I remember, and, and, and that furthermore, that, that, that there was no, it was no step for that author to think of that cloud as animate and that, that somehow X-rays were this terrible, animate cloud of stuff. And what's that? Is that science fiction? Certainly not. <laughs> it's not even really fantasy, is it? Because, well, because it isn't. And, uh, when you go back to the 20s in the States, at least, the, the example that comes to my mind is not specifically Lovecraft, but Weird Tales magazine itself. And particularly in the first five or six years of its existence, I mean, Weird Tales, I believe, started in 1923, and Amazing Stories didn't start until 1926. And so science fiction was being published in Weird Tales, but it was being published in the way you describe it, completely misunderstood ideas of science, possibly mixed with the supernatural, possibly mixed with the grotesque, with horror stories. Um, I'm not sure whether Robert E. Howard thought he was writing science fiction or fantasy or horror or pseudo-mythology, and I'm not sure that he even asked himself those questions. And I suspect that what happened once the science fiction pulp magazines got going, they began to drain off some of those stories, and Weird Tales became more a horror magazine and less this kind of fluid, all-purpose uh genre of fiction that that you were talking about yeah i would like to write that i would uh, the older i get the more i would like to write that um and while i read a fair bit of quantum mechanics not in a sense of researching it but in the sense that i'd had an interest in it for 15 years anyway uh for for empty space and the others but but that's not the point the point is the imagination. Um, and I think those old stories were places where the authors could go and let their imagination uh, have its own way with, with, uh, with words, as it were. It's back to this idea of a sandbox, a place where you can do play, um, for me. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious then how you feel about the recent discussions about how science fiction is becoming creatively exhausted. Do you see that happening around you? I think that that was, I think Paul used that phrase or coined that phrase in a very specific, to to describe a very specific type of exhaustion. Mm -hmm. Um, He he was really referring to commercialization. Yeah. Commercialization, which has thinned out the subject matter, as it were. Yeah. Away from that kind of commoditization and certainly in the area of, of, of what you might call slipstream, I don't see. I don't see anything like that happening, but that's in a way it's a, a circular argument, because those kinds of fiction, slipstream fiction, very precisely and specifically, is avoiding the kinds of commoditization and thinning out uh, that you would find in in a, in a highly commercialized genre. Um, but I think there's no doubt about the fact that, that, that commercial fiction, a commercial fiction, can always be shown to be, to be in, a, in a cyclic condition. <laughs> it's, <laughs> either, it's either on its way up or it's on its way down in terms <laughs> of, of interesting new subject matter, interesting new ways of of, of uh, expressing that subject matter and so on and so forth and that those are linked as they are in rock and roll music to 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 the levels of commercialization uh, and popularization in in the field um, ie I mean we all know that the horror field collapsed at the end of the 80s because it was simply overwritten into there was too much the readers just suddenly lost interest it was the same old stuff again and again and again and again. Um, I think that certain kinds of commercialized generic SF are in that condition, that they are in an exhausted condition. Mm -hmm. But that the answer to that, the solution to that problem is already up and running. And that is younger writers and edgier writers dissatisfied with that kind of thing and and doing their best to be different. And I think that's true not only of commercial fiction. I suppose commercial fiction includes a category of mainstream fiction. And the the literature of exhaustion was John Barth's phrase from 1967 or something originally. Uh, So it's, it's pretty much possible both in and out of the science fiction arena to find at least once every decade, proclamations of exhaustion. As a matter of fact, and I, I think we'd mentioned this on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, I was reading the afterword to Judith Merrill's very first science fiction, The Year's Best. And the afterword starts about, it starts off talking about the, the collapse in the science fiction field last year, and it's, it's, it's over now, and we're just, and I thought, this is the first <laughs> year's best that Judith Merrill is doing. Yeah, I think that plays into my definition of it as, as you know cyclothymic um, mm-hmm. it's always happening it's always not happening there's always new stuff arriving uh, what but but it needs to be said I mean yes. the other thing is that, that it always needs to be said because otherwise mm-hmm. the publishing industry will keep publishing the same thing over and over and over again 
uh, it's what they know, what the publishing in- industry knows is to find something that works and hammer it into the ground, um, yes. not to find a point upon it. Um, everything about that industry is set up to do that um, yeah. and it needs people to be constantly reminding everybody from the readers to the editors to themselves as writers that something different could be done something new has to be found everything's got boring everything's got stale it just needs that human beings need that agreed I have to say that that probably sounds like a, a perfect note, believe it or not, in which to wind up. We've run somewhat over our, our normal length for this modest podcast, but it's been an immensely enjoyable experience. I'm tremendously re- reluctant to say we should to wind up, but I'd like to thank you so much for joining us you know, this week, and I hope we'll get a chance to talk again. Well, absolutely. It was my pleasure. It was, uh, it was a nice talk. It was wonderful to catch up, and I hope we'll see you Maybe we'll be in uh, London before and after Brighton, so maybe sometime this... Oh, you're not even in London anymore. How far How far away are you? Uh, far away enough. I'm in the Midlands now. And, uh, ah, but I, all right. But I will be down. In, I mean, I, I don't intend to become a provincial. <laughs> uh, just because I've gone to the provinces. <laughs> oh, no, no. Um, I will be down in London in... Uh, when, is, when is the fantasy con? Uh, end of October, October 28th through November the 1st or something. I believe I'll be down in London early November for um, there's a, a conference on the weird uh, on the 7th and 8th, I think, of November, um, which I'm going to give a reading at. But um, so our paths might cross there. Or well, not, we're, we're the week before, but maybe some. I think we're both actually in in London. Well, in London from about October the twenty fourth through twenty seventh or something. But we shall have to see what happens. Well, yeah, well, you never know. I might be down. I'll, you know, it's possible that I'll go down there before I um, uh, before the before the weird conference. Yeah. Uh, and in which case we should meet up. It would be a great pleasure. But until such should... times. Thank you so very, very much. Well, thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Charlton. Good to talk to you again. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. Good. All right. Okay. And, Gary, until next week, I shall talk to you again. We will have another podcast soon, and we should remind all our listeners to go out and get the Kindle single of Cave and Julia. There will be a, a link to it on the blog. Until then, Excellent. now, as always, we remain. Hi, Jonathan Macklemont. The Mullers of Coot Street.